0: Well, Merry Christmas to you all. Merry uh, this morning, I want to do something a little uh, different than what I normally offer you in the sermon. Um, as most of you know, we've been preaching uh, verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. We started that, I believe, back in April. And uh, so far, we've made it uh, through the end of chapter 11, so we still have a few more chapters to go. And uh, while verse-by-verse verse, exposition is my, uh, typically my preferred method of preaching, uh, it's, it's not necessarily the best um, way of preaching, um, but I like it because it's easiest. And uh, I think it al- also helps uh, people follow along as the weeks go by. But it is, uh, I think, perhaps equally or more important to teach the Word of God uh, topically, That is, where you gather what all of Scripture has to say about one doctrine, and then you expound the truth of that doctrine rather than just one text. Of course, both methods of preaching are legitimate. Each has its own virtue according to the preacher's intended end. But this morning, I want to give you one of those topical sermons. And the sermon this morning is going to focus on answering a single question. And that question is Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Now, on the surface, uh, we might laugh a little bit, right? We're Christians. We know who Jesus is. This may sound like a rather easy and simple question to answer. And yet, uh, history testifies, and even our present day testifies, to how difficult this question actually is to answer. Moreover, The scriptures themselves warn us that there are going to be false versions of Christ, false prophets and false doctrines about Christ that we must be on guard against. So listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. He says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's anathema. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So there is only one gospel, there is only one Christ, and God reserves the strongest words of condemnation, anathema, for those who preach a different gospel or a different Christ than what was already preached to them. Moreover, God commands the church in Jude, verse 3, to, quote, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And then he gives the reason in the next verse, verse 4. Why? Because certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this, this condemnation. Ungodly man, men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So as soon as the truth of who Christ is came into the world, wicked men governed by their lusts, governed by evil spirits and impure thoughts, they attacked this truth and began to mix it with many errors. This was happening in Jesus' day, it was happening in the apostles' day, and it it continues to happen uh, throughout church history. And so if you actually, uh, if you were to read a church history book, really the first 700 years of church history, uh, wherein uh, six ecumenical councils were convened, they were marked by the church defining the truth against error, clarifying the truth that was laid down, explaining that truth so people could understand it, and at times, uh, dying for that truth. This is how our forefathers contended for the faith and the truth of who Christ is. Without their efforts, without their uh, sufferings and exiles and even martyrdoms, perhaps none of us in this room would even be Christians today, right? We, we could all be speaking Arabic or something, right? The Nicene Creed that we recited earlier in the service, that we recite every Lord's Day, is the result of a world in crisis over the identity of Jesus Christ. The questions that we ask you or your children before they are baptized are questions about the identity of Jesus Christ. Your very salvation, your eternal destiny, hangs upon how you answer this question, who is Jesus Christ? And So this morning I want to answer that question according to the Holy Scriptures. And then I want to survey how this truth has been defended against various heresies and competing interpretations of who Jesus is. So uh, the outline of my sermon is as follows. First, I'll give just a basic answer, a basic explanation of who Christ is. Second, I want to give a summary defense of that explanation from our uh, passage in John 1. And then we're going to have a kind of uh, what I'll call a heresy parade. All right? So uh, you'll notice... I've actually given you notes uh, this, this Sunday. This might be the first time in the history of uh, me preaching here. I've given you something besides the text to look at. So, um, you know, take this home with you, uh, study it. So we'll have our, our little heresy parade. And then below, you can see there, I've also given you the definition of uh, Chalcedon, which is really, you know, one of the best uh, articulations of who Christ is that um, is in existence. So we'll get there. All right, so, so let's first give a basic explanation of who Christ is. According to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the, the Athanasian Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon, there are three basic truths that Scripture gives us about Christ. All right, so I'm just condensing what, if you were to read the whole Bible and make everything harmonized together, here's the three truths that the church has said, this is what Scripture teaches. They are as follows. Number one... Jesus Christ is fully God. Number two, Jesus Christ is fully man. And number three, Jesus Christ is one divine person. Who is Jesus? He's fully God, he's fully man, and he's one divine person. Put another way, Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who has taken to himself a fully human nature. In uh, theological terms, we call this joining of the human nature with the divine, the hypostatic union. Uh, so hypostasis, there's a, there's a long debate here. Uh, hypostasis refers to the person who is uh, the divine son. So the human nature and the divine nature come together in the one hypostasis or person. And we call this, therefore, it's the hypostatic union, right? There's your $1,000 theology word for today. There will probably be others in this sermon. So Jesus is God in the flesh. He's one divine person with two distinct natures. And very importantly, these two natures do not mix, They do not mingle, they do not morph and create some third thing, they are joined together hypostatically in the Son of God. If that seems hard to understand, well, uh, it is, but it is in no way a contradiction in terms or in reality. So the mystery of the Christian faith, the mystery of the Incarnation is not uh, asking you or requiring you to confess in square circles or circular squares. Right? So it's like the doctrine of the Trinity is not a math problem that is a, a, a mathematical contradiction. Right? There's no two plus two equals five here. No, there is a very real, genuine, and harmonious truth that Scripture gives us about Christ, and the creeds summarize for us what that truth is. Uh, to give you just one imperfect analogy for how Jesus can be both one person with two natures, uh, consider yourself for a moment. You're one person, and you have two natures. You're, I mean, I think you're all one, you know, individually, you're one person. And what are your two natures? Well, you have a body and, and a soul. Those are your two natures, and you're one person. Uh, while Jesus, uh, so you, you got, this is an analogy, so you got to make some adjustments, Uh, Jesus, however, is not a human person. This this is where a vast majority of people and even theologians get it wrong. Jesus is not a human person. Jesus is a divine person with a human nature. Uh, He is a divine person with a human nature. He joins to himself the fullness of humanity, which includes the nature of a body and the nature of a soul. Those things together are what we call a human nature, a nature, uh, a body and a soul. So while Jesus has a divine mind and a human mind, a divine will and a human will, this is only possible because he is a divine person. He's not a human person like you. We can kind of understand this a little bit when we feel tension between our two natures. So the alarm goes off in the morning, our body is tired, but our mind says, you got to get up, got to go to work. The spirit is willing, Jesus says, but the flesh is weak. And so while we have that tension in ourselves because of sin, Jesus had no sin. And therefore, even his human mind could perfectly rule his human body, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel. So there's just one kind of helpful analogy. Uh, You know, you're one person, you have two natures. Jesus is a divine person who has a divine and human nature joined in his one person. So uh, what you will find out in the history of the church is that Really, every heresy about Christ is a denial of one of those three basic truths that I gave you. That Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and he's one divine person. And we'll see this more clearly when we get to our heresy parade. Okay, so that's, that's just your summary uh, view of, of who Christ is. Let's move now to our text and see how the church arrived at these three basic truths. It has been said... That in these opening two verses of John's gospel, and together with verse 14, in these verses are contained all the truths necessary to refute every heresy about Christ. Which, which is why I've chosen this text. So if we consider well and understand what is contained in these verses, and you know, derive from these principles to uh, conclusions of truth, we will arrive at the true doctrine of Christ so let us turn now to our our exposition of John 1 1 to 5 and verse 14 so starting in verses 1 and 2 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God so uh, John does four things in these opening lines of his gospel note First, he tells us when the Word was, in the beginning. Second, he tells us where the Word was, at the Word was with God. Third, he tells us what the Word was, the Word was God. And then fourth, he tells us in what mode the Word was. He was in the beginning with God. And together, these four statements establish that the Word who became flesh, in verse 14, 14, is holy, divine. So let's break down each of these phrases in verses 1 and 2 into uh, in greater detail. So this first phrase in the beginning was the word. In Greek this is en arche en ho logos. Our English word word translates the Greek word logos. Logos. But we need to think for a moment what is a word or what is a, a logos? We need to think about this deeply. Well, what is a word? Well, a spoken word is a vocal sound that is a sign of an affection in your soul. So before we make any noise with our mouth to communicate to others, first we form in, our, in ourselves or conceive some notion or intention of what we want to express. And it is that interior idea or understanding that we call an interior word or logos or in Latin, logos. Verbum, And then when we make sounds with our mouth to communicate that concept in our mind, we call that spoken sound an exterior word or logos or verbum. So with us and among creatures, a word is something that is first intellectual. It is interior to you. It is also immaterial. It is something that actually proceeds from within you as you understand something or form a thought and yet this word or logos is distinct from you. It's in you, it proceeds from within you, and yet it's distinct from you. It is in us, but not identical to us, okay? There's a lot more that we could say about this, but for now, let that uh, suffice, okay? A word or a logos is a conception or notion of understanding in your mind, okay? So John says, in the beginning was the logos, was the word. Well, why does John say in the beginning? Well, this word beginning translates the Greek word arche. In Latin, it is principium. And arche or principium or beginning can have a diversity of meanings, even within Holy Scripture. So it, of course, can refer naturally to the beginning of time, but it can also refer to the first principle or cause in a certain higher arche or order. It can also refer to the point at which two surfaces or lines meet, like a corner or an arch. It can refer to the beginning or first principle from which we gain greater understanding. That's actually how Paul uses it in Hebrews 5.12. Arche can also refer to a person, like a ruler or an authority figure. So Paul speaks of Jesus, quote, spoiling the principalities and powers. And principalities there are archas, they're arches. So Yet whatever meaning of archa is intended here by John, John makes known to us that in the beginning, in that archa, the word already was. Whether of time or order or anything created, whatever your arche is, when that archa was, already the word was. It says in Proverbs eight twenty-two to 23, speaking of divine wisdom, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, referring to creation. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. So Proverbs 8, this passage by Solomon is one of these great meditations upon the divine word under the guise of wisdom. So uh, pick your beginning, pick your archae, whatever and whenever it is, John tells us the word already was. So Think about what we've established in just these opening lines. We've established that there's some kind of word that is intellectual. It's interior. It's immaterial. And this word is also something that is eternal. It's before there was an arche, before the beginning. Continuing on, John says, "And the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. So when was the Word?" Always, in the beginning he was, and now where was the word in his eternity? Well, the word was with God. So note now, we have two subjects. We have God, and we have the word. They are both distinct, and yet together. They are with one another before the beginning. So think about this conjunction, with. This with signifies, as we will discover in the next phrase, a union of nature between God and the word. The word was with God in that they share the divine nature. They are both God. And yet this with also signifies that they are distinct from one another. So there is a genuine relation of otherness between the word and God such that they can be said to be with one another. So the word was with God as sharing the divine nature and with God as somehow other or distinct from him. You're starting to hopefully feel the intellectual pressure of okay, how are we going to make this all work together? Right. This is where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. Okay. So the Word was with God as sharing the divine nature, and with God as somehow distinct from Him. Next, we are told, "And the Word was, was God, and the Word was God." So again, when was the Word? Always, eternally. Where was the Word? with God as together and yet distinct from him. And now what is the word? What is the word? Well, the word was God. By this identity of word and God, we are forced to further adjust our concept now of word so that it matches up with everything else we know about God. So any, anytime you say anything about God, you're taking it from a creaturely reality. And, and this is the same with scripture. It's not like scripture is this magical book that gives us things that we don't you know can't sensibly relate to, okay so John says in the beginning was a word you got to think what is a word that that means absolutely nothing to you if you don't know what word is okay so this is uh, this is a very difficult concept and uh, you know it's hard even for children to understand this because it's not something sensible we're we're at the highest uh, point of human of human creatures when we're talking about the human intellect there's there's literally nothing higher in the order of creatures than the human intellect. And so we're thinking about something that you cannot touch, you cannot smell, you cannot taste. It's something interior to you that we call logos. And John is taking that logos, that word that you have, that conception in your mind, and he's trying to teach you something about, about God from it. So he's saying now this word, this word, capital W word, was God. So now we need to make a few adjustments. So we all have the idea of word in our head. And we know that that's obviously not God, right? It's just a word in our minds. But now how can we say that about God? This is, this is theology. This is the trick. So let's see, let's see how we can do. By this identity of word and God, we are forced to further adjust our concept of word so that it matches up with everything else we are told in the Bible about God. Okay, so we need to use what everything, everything that Scripture says about God to purify our understanding of word when we're putting it in God. So let's make some comparison and contrast here. Whereas a word that proceeds from our intellect is both in us and distinct from us, it is not of the same nature as us. I'm going to say this again. A word that proceeds from our intellect is both in us and distinct from us. It is not of the same nature as us. So put another way, our conception or understanding of ourselves is not identical to who we are as real beings. It's real in our mind, but it's not real outside of our mind. However, when it comes to this divine word, who is God... This interior procession in the divine intellect, God's own word, God's own self-understanding, is of the same nature as God. So John is telling us God and God's word, God and God's own self-conception of himself is God. Okay? Are you being stretched? I'm, I'm, okay, and, and I'm just telling you, we're we're at the like the highest point in theology right now on Sunday morning. So if you don't understand this, you know all of my notes are going to be online. You can you can read it. Okay, this, this is difficult stuff. When it comes to the Word in God, this interior procession of the divine intellect, God's own self-understanding, is of the same nature as God. So John is telling us God and God's Word are both God. We can also add that this divine word is unchanging and immovable. Whereas our thoughts and our words change and develop over time or are forgotten altogether, the divine word comprehends everything eternally in himself and knows everything through his own essence so that God's word and God's essence are identical. They are one. They are the same thing. There's this... uh, Statement you'll learn in theology. All that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. Because God is one, right? This is, this is the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. So here is the beginning of the mystery of the Trinity. And you can, I, I think, hopefully see... How so many falsehoods and heresies about who Christ is could derive? Because this is not like the easiest thing to understand. It's actually very hard to understand, and it'd be very easy to make some mistakes when you're doing this. So you have to like you have to tread with caution. Try, trust trust the church. Trust trust the great theologians. So here's the beginning of the mystery of the Trinity. There's one God. And yet there is a real procession in the divine mind that John calls the Word. And this Word adds nothing new to the divine essence. It just is the divine essence. It is the Word who is also God. All right, finally, in verse 2, we have our fourth phrase, which is a kind of epilogue and summary of of these three statements that ties it all together. It says, The same was in the beginning with God. So same is referring to that word. The same was in the beginning with God. So just in case there was any misunderstanding about the previous three statements, which uh, there, there may be, John clarifies here that this same word was with God in the beginning. So contrary to Arius, to heretics, there was never a time when the word was not. When God was, the word was also. The word is what we call co-eternal and consubstantial, that is, of the same nature with God. And then, again, in case you still did not believe that this word is really God, John says this in verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So according to Genesis 1, who made everything? God. God. And here John is telling us that this word is the one God who made everything. It says, without him was not anything made that was made. So John is really clear that this word is God. You cannot say that the word is some lower created being because the word is the one who created everything. And we already know from Genesis 1, God created everything. So if it has being, the word gave that thing its being. All things were made By him. Furthermore, in verses four and five, John tells us that this divine word has life in himself. In him was life, and the light was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So, whatever life, whatever knowledge and light that men possess, it comes from the word who is God. And the darkness cannot encompass it. It cannot extinguish it. This is the light and life of men. So take all of that that John says about the word in these five verses. And now see what he does with it in verse 14. That same logos, that word says, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, according to John one, he is the divine word who was in the beginning with God, eternally begotten from the father who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the one divine person we call the son of God. He has the fullness of divinity from the Father and a real human nature like you and I, except without sin. For he is the one who is full of grace and truth. All right, so there's, there's the brief exposition of the text. Let us turn now to our heresy parade. And as I said, they are printed in your bulletin, all right? So put on your thinking caps, stay sharp. You remember, I remind you that, Every one of these heresies boils down to a rejection of one of three truths. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is one divine person. And the game is figure out which one of these heresies is denying which truth. Okay? So, the first heresy in our parade is what we call docetism, which is a form of Gnosticism. There's going to be a lot of isms you're going to be learning today. Uh, Docetism... It comes from this Greek word meaning just to seem is a heresy that teaches that Jesus only seemed or appeared to have a real human body. But in reality, he was a pure spirit. So he's, he's kind of like a ghost, basically, when he he was dying on the cross. It wasn't a real human body. It's kind of like an angel who's just, you know, projecting a human nature or something. So this is what docetism teaches. And there are many, uh, you know, little variations of Uh, this Gnostic heresy. So which truth does this deny? Well, that Jesus is fully human. Docetism denies that God came in real human flesh. And you can see how this is a kind of pious heresy, right? God, you, you read the Old Testament, it's very clear, like, God is a spirit, God is immaterial, you cannot see him, he's immutable, he's unchangeable. Think about all the things that you read about God and sing about him in the Psalms, and then someone is telling you that God took on this? That, that is a little hard to believe if you're steeped in the Old Testament like that. And so these Gnostic heretics say he just appeared to have a human body. Well, what does the Bible say about this heresy? Well, many things. It says in 2 John, verse 6, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Likewise, in First John 4, 3, it says, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. So uh, contrary to many of the reformers who we love uh, and even the original Westminster divines, uh, Pope Francis is not the Antichrist, right? He might be a bad Pope, (laughs) might not be uh, the best Bishop, but he is not the Antichrist. He does not deny this truth, okay? The Antichrist is not a future incarnation of the devil. An Antichrist, according to John, is anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It says in 1 John 2.22, he is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So there were many antichrists in the apostolic era. You see this in 1 John 2.18. And that spirit of antichrist continues down to the present day in all who reject the Father and the Son and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. So who is antichrist? Well, it's Mormons. It's Jehovah's Witnesses. It's Muslims. It's atheists. It's anyone who denies Father and Son and that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, simultaneous with these various Gnostic heresies, there were also some uniquely Jewish heresies. Uh, One of them is Ebionism, which taught that Jesus was the greatest man, the supreme prophet. He perfectly kept the law of God, but he was adopted as God's son at his baptism. So which truth does this deny? Well, it denies that Jesus, Jesus is fully God. And you can, again, imagine how this would be a temptation for many Jews who could not square Old Testament monotheism with the belief that Jesus is God in the flesh. All right, so, you know, what is the first commandment? No other gods besides me. And now you're telling me that this man, Jesus Christ, is someone I'm supposed to worship? This would be scandalous Many Jews, and there's a reason why they persecuted the apostles. Okay, so uh, Ebionism tried to kind of split the difference by acknowledging that Jesus was the greatest of men and inspired by God, but they would not go so far as to say he is identical with the one supreme and invisible creator God. Against this heresy, well, you have really. The witness of all four Gospels where Jesus is doing things that only God can do. I don't know, kind of like forgiving sin. (laughs) Who else can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is going around forgiving sin. So, in the apostolic and early church era, there were all kinds of fringe, weird belief systems, Gnostic and Jewish heresies. But the first real great doctrinal crisis came from where do you expect? From within the church, amongst its own leaders. And this became known as the Arian crisis. So Arius, he lived 256 to 336 AD. He was a presbyter, kind of a bishop or a pastor, who taught that there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. And they had these little chants they would sing and teach people. There was a time when the sun was not. And Arius believed that if Jesus is God, then that makes two gods, the Son and the Father. And this would, of course, violate monotheism. And and it would, if we actually thought that. So by trying to kind of protect the Father as the one God, he taught that Jesus was a very exalted, high, but created being. This doctrinal division was tearing the Roman Empire apart, and so in 325 AD, the Emperor Constantine called for the very first ecumenical council at Nicaea to settle this dispute. And if you want to know where Nicaea is, uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. The result of this church council was the original version of the Nicene Creed, which stated against Arius' position the following, that the Lord Jesus Christ is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And that of the same essence, this is famous Greek word, homoousios, and uh, if you just remove one iota from that statement to make it say of like substance, Arius was, was good with that, he's, he's like the same substance as the father. And the church says, no, he's homoousios, of the same essence as the father. It is on that that one word that Arianism was refuted and denounced. So uh, this original Nicene Creed then goes on to pronounce anathemas against anyone who taught otherwise. So these these are the actual anathemas from the original Nicene Creed. It says, As for those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before he was created and he was created out of nothing or out of another essence or thing or the son of God is created or changeable or can alter, the holy Catholic and apostolic church anathematizes those who say such things. So that was what came out of the first ecumenical council. Constantine Constantine said, either you sign this or you gotta go, you're exiled. Arius refused to sign the creed of Nicaea, and so Constantine sent him and two other bishops who refused to sign into exile. This defense of the truth and its victory over error marks the beginnings of of what would eventually become Christendom. For here, in Constantine, was the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and he was defending and enforcing the orthodox faith and the true religion. Constantine knew what many Christians now overtly reject, namely that an empire cannot stand unless the truth of Christianity prevails. If there is a division and schism in the church, there will be even greater division and even war in society. And only the true Jesus Christ, the true Lord Jesus Christ, can be the glue that holds everything together. This is also, by the way, just what the first commandment teaches. No other gods beside me. The Christianity that Arius proclaimed was a different God and a different Christ and a different religion than true Christianity. And therefore, it was rightly condemned as heretical. By the way, do you know what happened to Arius? Well, 11 years after the Council of Nicaea, uh, it wasn't like, all right, everyone agrees now. No. Uh, There was much war, much turmoil, and Arian Christianity, after a decade, was on the rise again. The great Athanasius was in exile, and the church in Constantinople was actually preparing to formally bring Arius back into the church. But on the day before this ceremony in 336, he was in a public restroom where he suffered a hemorrhage in his intestines and died. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So Christ is king of his church and he will defend her and vindicate her against heretics. So to summarize, Arianism denied that Jesus was fully God, and at the next ecumenical council in 381, the church would have to refute then a new and opposite error called Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. So Apollinarianism taught that Jesus was God, but denied that Jesus had a human mind and a human soul. So in Apollinarianism, the divine mind actually kind of replaces the human mind. And therefore, which truth do they deny? That Jesus is fully man. So you can see kind of the pendulum swing. It's like, he's really, really God, so much God that he's not really man. Or he's really, really man, so much so that he's not fully God. right? So this is is what Apollinarianism taught. This was rejected at the First Council of Constantinople in 381, and out of this controversy, Gregory of Nazianzus established a very important principle in Christology, which is as follows. He says, What has not been assumed has not been healed. What has not been assumed by the Son of God has not been healed. So uh, Gregory of Nazianzus is thinking about soteriology. So like, how can we be saved? Well, if the son of God did not take on a fully human nature, then the rest of my, there's parts of my human nature that he did not redeem. Okay. So he's trying to protect all of the things that Paul says about salvation, which if you make this move, then, well, can he really apply that salvation to you? Did he really um, uh, acquire that complete salvation? So he says, in order to secure our complete salvation, Jesus Christ had to have a complete human nature joined to his divine person. Against this idea that Jesus had no human mind or soul, we can point to texts such as Hebrews 4.15, which says that Jesus was, quote, in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Or we could look at the uh, many other places where Jesus does something that only someone with a human mind can do, like marvel, right? Jesus marvels. This is something that only a human could do. Or lay down one's life or one's soul or increase in wisdom, Luke 2, 52. So as much as we must defend that Jesus Christ is a fully divine person, we also must defend that Jesus Christ has a fully human nature. That is, our real humanity minus sin and its effects. The next great heresy that arose was Nestorianism. Nestorianism. And this taught that Christ is actually two persons, a divine person and a human person. This was rejected at the Council of Ephesus in 431. One of the creedal affirmations that came out of this controversy and was included 20 years later in the definition of Chalcedon, which our church holds to, was that Mary was the mother of God. Mary is the mother of God. In Greek, this is Theotokos, Theotokos. I'll read you the relevant line from the definition of Chalcedon. You can see this also if you look uh, on page 10. It says, He was begotten before the ages from the Father according to his deity. But in the last days for us and our salvation, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God, Theotokos, according to his humanity. So uh, this isn't really trying to say much about Mary. It's saying something about Jesus. So it's not saying that Mary like somehow gave divinity uh, to Jesus because she's somehow divine. No. What it does force you to say, though, is that Mary gave birth to a divine person, the Son of God, according to his humanity. And if you think about this deeply, if you reject that Mary is the mother of God, that Mary is Theotokos, You're actually dividing Jesus into two persons. You're saying that little baby Jesus that came out of uh, Mary's womb is not God, but rather some other individual. This is what Nestorius taught. So the Theotokos title for Mary ensures that Jesus Christ is one divine persons, not two persons and not a human person with a divine nature. This is the genius of the definition of Chalcedon, which goes on to say, He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, who is made known in two natures, united, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature is preserved and concurs together into one person and subsistence. He is not separated or divided into two persons, but he is one and the same son, the only begotten, God the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the prophets spoke of him from the beginning, and Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and the counsel of the fathers has handed the faith down to us. So this, if you want the best creedal formula for who Christ is, uh, read the definition of Chalcedon. After Chalcedon, there were two other errors that had to be refuted. One was monophysitism, which taught that Jesus Christ had only one divine nature. So again, Jesus was not fully man. And then there was kind of a lighter form of Apollinarianism called monothelitism, which affirmed two natures in Christ, but denied that Jesus had a human will. Both of these heresies are soundly rejected on Chalcedonian principles, and thus ends our heresy parade. All right, well, there's enough theology to keep you busy for the next year. Um, (laughs) Let me close with this. Peter says in Acts 4.12 that there is no other name under heaven but Jesus Christ of Nazareth by which we must be saved. There's no other name. And what we learn from John's gospel and what we learn from church history is that it really matters what you mean by that name, Jesus Christ right? Even Arius and many heretics had no problem saying Jesus Christ is Lord. They just meant something false by, the, by those words. And so it is. Who do, you, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Well, you must confess that he is God. You must confess he is fully man. And you must confess that he is one divine person. Because there is no other Jesus Christ but this that can save you. In the name of the Father, and the Word, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for this most glorious truth that stretches us, that is so high above us and hard to attain, and yet that is exactly what you ought to be. Beyond us, God, incomprehensible, worthy of worship, God, as we try, try to become better theologians, as we just try to know who you are truly, not uh, from the many falsehoods that the world has sown about you, we ask that you would guide us into that truth so that when we pray, when we worship, when we sing, when we confess the creed, that we would do so not as those speaking words without knowledge or words without understanding, but would know who you are truly pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.